remember a time my dad took me to the ER. I was probably seven or eight. I um, just remember the nurse asking me if that was my dad. And um, I'm a child of adoption, so both of my parents are white. And I was really confused by that question um, because I didn't, I didn't know anything else. I just knew him as my dad. And that's the one time I really noticed that I was different. Adoption is something that um, has always been on our heart and something that we, that we talked about even before we were married. So with Isaiah, um, we got chosen when his birth mom was just about to enter her third trimester. So we had about um, 10 or 12 weeks to get to know each other and that was really such a gift. He is just a cuddly, sweet kid and um, it's, it's such a gift to be his parents. All of our adopted kids were born in Tulsa, Oklahoma. and. We have to stay there about five weeks when we adopt a child. So um, during that time, um, when Isaiah was a little baby, I was walking into church one day and I had him in a sling and um, a, a woman of color came up to me and she said, excuse me, what's going on here? There's nothing like being followed in a grocery store or people looking at us when we go to dinner sometimes. You know, I even had someone ask me one time when I was out with the kids if I was um, Juniper's nanny. Um, and that, that one really hurt. I would want to prepare my girls for any kind of racial inequality because um, it can be dangerous for them not to be educated on what to do in case you come across a police officer. So we definitely have conversations with Isaiah and Shepard but specifically Isaiah, um, that we don't have to have with our, with our white children. At the age of three, I started teaching him that whenever he saw a police officer, that he was to put his hands up. I also would like dress him in collared shirts. I wanted, wanted him to be really comfortable with clothes that look really nice and professional because I know that he'll be safer if he's well-dressed. The way the gospel speaks to um, equality and justice, I think it's really simple and that it just comes down to loving our neighbors as ourselves. Not like ourselves, but <laughs> as ourselves. The, the church really should be leading the way in reconciliation and pursuing justice. Instead. And not ignoring it and not criticizing, but actually being being the leaders, um, that would be an amazing thing to see. Uh, something I want to see for my daughters in the future is the people to be more educated towards different cultures and different people. But I believe this country has been blessed because of, you know, the diversity here. And this is a, a, a glimmer of what heaven will be like. I think that Jesus is no stranger to diversity. Um, and if we're children of God and followers of Jesus, we shouldn't have issues with diversity either. We should want to educate ourselves and want to um, be around other people from all different walks of life. Um, I think that's what makes us stronger as people, but it also makes us stronger as a community. By the time our kids are adults, um, I just dream that they'd be able to, to go out in public and 
not need to think about the way they're perceived. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light. And so I think that, that we're the city on the hill. We're, we're supposed to be the leaders. We're supposed to be displaying an example for others to follow. Um, we should be the culture changers. We should be changing the atmosphere wherever we go. A lesson I'd like to teach our kids um, is to be image bearers and always lead with kindness um, and realize that the world can be a beautiful place. And we're definitely hastening to the day that Jesus, our Messiah, comes back and kind of rules and reigns and um, leads us by example of you know, acceptance and understanding. that day to happen right now <laughs> what a crazy world I hope you've been appreciating the videos that we've made for this series on politics and gender and now on race and a big shout of thanks to the tireless and super creative video crew and for all the people in these videos who graciously volunteered to share a little bit of their story with us you're all awesome and we love you and we support you uh, beginning this Monday evening and then for the following two weeks, Jose May and myself are hosting Zoom discussions on racial equality. When, with all the recent events um, around race taking place, it's important for all of us to be informed and to practice peacemaking around these issues, and particularly the race issue. Natalie will tell you more about how to register at the end of this service, okay? Today, I wanna introduce you to a paradigm that can bring peace and reconcilia reconciliation into any serious conflict, but especially those that seem to be hopeless and unreconcilable. Um, whether it's a conflict between spouses, um, friends, Blacks and whites, men and women, liberals, conservatives, Israelis and Palestinians, Shiites and Sunnis. Just name any serious and seemingly irreconcilable conflict. And this paradigm offers a workable path leading to peace and reconciliation. If, if, that's that caveat, if both sides are willing to engage in the process. The title of this message is The Transformation the transformative power of conflict, and this is not about conflict resolution, it's about conflict transformation. Conflict resolution typically deals with resolving an immediate struggle and often ignores the history and the opposing narratives behind what led to the immediate struggle in the first place, which often ends up acting more like putting on a, a, a small band-aid over a huge, deep, gaping wound, leaving the situation vulnerable to another flare-up in the future. Think of, think of the many peace pacts made in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as a good example of conflict resolution rather than conflict transformation, where multiple tiny band-aids solutions have only led to future flare-ups, multiple flare-ups. Most, you know, most of you know that Andrew and I had some serious problems early on in our marriage, and unfortunately, those problems didn't magically disappear once we began to follow Jesus. And so at some point, we decided to see a very well-known uh, national 
Christian counselor because he was connected to our church in Irvine. And after listening to our story, this is the advice he gave us. He said, do one nice thing for each other every day. Write a kind note, buy a thoughtful gift, and over time your wounds will heal and you'll both fall in love again. And I remember, I remember us leaving. I'm just trying to get this set right. It just won't stay, stay. I remember Andrew and I leaving, and we were feeling really discouraged, not only because neither of us were in a, I mean, not only because neither of us was in a place at that time where we wanted to do something like this for each other, we didn't, but also because this Band-Aid strategy totally ignored the deep wounds we had caused each other over the years, so we never went back for a second appointment. Um, we did find somebody else, though, and it helped, he helped us a lot. Another unique feature about conflict transformation is that it views conflict as a normative part of life. And so it doesn't consider conflict as a problem. It considers it an opportunity for transformation and growth. And with that more positive and hopeful perspective, it offers a path that can lead to healing and relationship transformation. John Paul Lederach, uh, a Mennonite Christian and pacifist, is credited for first establishing the framework for conflict transformation, uh, and he based his framework on his Mennonite pacifist convictions. Lederach wrote in his 1999 book called Journey Toward Reconciliation that his Christian faith has affected both his thinking and application of nonviolent solutions to conflict. And here's a definition um, for conflict transformation that he has in the form of several bullet points. He says, first of all, conflict transformation is to envision and respond to the ebb and flow of social conflict as life-giving opportunities for creating constructive change processes that reduce violence, increase justice in direct interaction and social structures, and respond to real-life problems in human relationships. At the end of this message, I'm going to share a couple of examples of how this paradigm has been used in connection with some of the work we do here at Cornerstone. But first, I want to look at an example in the Bible where we see a Band-Aid solution trying to cover up a deep conflict wound, okay? Israel was a united kingdom up until King Solomon's death in 931 BCE. But a year later, there was a civil war between the north and the south, and as a result, this united kingdom split into two divided kingdoms. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel, while the southern kingdom took on the name Judah. Both kingdoms claimed that their narrative was the only true and moral narrative, and because of this narrative divide, deadly violence often took place between these two kingdoms for the next two centuries. It was a sad time in Israel's history, and around the 200-year mark of this conflict, God began to speak through some of the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others that the two kingdoms better reconcile soon or something really bad was going to happen to them. But there were some false prophets who began to minimize the problem by saying things aren't that bad. And they offered ineffective Band-Aid solutions to remedy the problem. 
Here's what God said about this through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 11. He said, They, meaning the false prophets, dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. And now you know where this band-aid metaphor came from. Because these false prophets were minimizing the divide and were trying to cover up this serious wound with this tiny band-aid solution. God used a different metaphor through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 13, 10, 11, it says, Because they, meaning the false prophets again, lead my people astray, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they covered up with whitewash. I'll stop right there. In this metaphor, there's a wall that is falling apart. It's got cracks or it's, it's built with very shoddy materials. But instead of making repairs to strengthen the integrity of the wall, they just covered up with some white paint. And so God goes on to describe the consequences of their avoidant, avoidant behavior. Therefore, tell those who cover with whitewash that it is going to fall. Rain will come in torrents and I will send hailstones hurtling down and violent winds will burst Forth. And not long after these warnings, the Assyrians would crush the northern kingdom, and a little later, the Babylonians would crush the southern kingdom. And of course, the walls, both literally and metaphorically, came tumbling down. God really dislikes the band aid solutions of avoidance and denial that only lead and then support these deep wounds. One of my uh, all-time favorite movie scenes comes from the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I bet some of you have seen it. All right, there's at least two hands that went up. Three. Go rent it. It's probably free on YouTube. Um, So... It's a time when King Arthur approaches the Black Knight, and Black Knight is is blocking the road so you can't get through. So they begin to duke it out with their swords. And King, King Arthur lands a direct hit and severs the Black Knight's arm right off. As his shoulder is now gushing streams of blood, King Arthur says, Now stand aside, man. Your arm's off. And the Black Knight says, Tis only a scratch, a flesh wound. I've had worse. And so the fight ensues uh, to rage on, and King Arthur ends up severing all four of the Black Knight's limbs, and as he's now easily able to pass around the Black Knight, who is a limbless stump of gushing blood, the Black Knight shouts out to King Arthur, come back and fight like a man, you coward. And King Arthur says, well, what are you going to do, bleed on me? It's a hilarious scene, and... That takes Band-Aid and whitewashing solutions to a really ridiculous level. But someone, if you think about this, when, when, it, when someone typically asks a husband how his marriage is doing, the husband will often respond, rock solid, right? But when the wife is asked the same question, she will often respond, hanging by a thin thread. Come on, lady, say amen if you know what I'm talking about here. At least one? Not even one. Okay. All right. Well, it's normative for all relationships to have conflict. You cannot get through this life 
and particularly if, if you're in a relationship without having conflict. And these conflicts stem from holding, a lot of times from holding totally opposite narratives that seem to be hopelessly and irreconcilably divided, like it's doing fine. No, it's almost dead. Sadly, the early church was plagued with them, and the book of Acts largely is Paul writing letters to address these horrible divisions. The church in Corinth was a hotbed for divisions, and right out of the running blocks in his letter to them, Paul says, this is just chapter 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you, what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And if you recall, if you've ever read through the book of, of uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, really, because it doesn't stop. He has to write a second letter. Some of the people said, well, I follow Paul. And some of the people said, well, I follow Apollos. And still others said, well, I follow Peter. And each side firmly believed that their leader had the better narrative. But this kind of self-focus-based alliance was only leading to deeper divisions within the church. And sadly, church divisions didn't end in the first century because today we have thousands upon thousands of church denominations and sub-denominations with each one of them firmly believing that they have the correct narrative. There's even been deadly violence waged between denominations over the centuries. Just one from a modern example of this is the 30-year deadly violent rift of the 1900s between the Catholics and the Protestants of Northern Ireland. And of course, right now, we're seeing a division inside and outside of the church like we've never seen before. I don't know if you, if, if, if you, if you caught this interview, but veteran newsman Sam Donaldson was, was interviewed on the news just a few days ago, and he was asked if the division's taking place, like Donaldson's probably my age or maybe a little bit older, um, and he was asked if the divisions taking place in our country right now are worse than the anti-war, anti-racism divisions of the 60s and the 70s that, co- that he covered as a younger reporter, which saw lots of violence and even deadly violence at times. And Donaldson's answer was this. He says, we haven't seen this deep of a division in our country since the Civil War. That's quite a statement for such a respected news person. It is why we started this series, Peacemakers. Let me give you one more verse before I share a couple of of cornerstone stories that relate to conflict transformation. Okay, the church in Ephesus was also no stranger to divisions. And in chapter 2, Paul writes about how Jesus' death breaks down the dividing wall of hostility, right? And meaning that through faith, we all become united in Jesus and therefore united in one purposeful narrative as we all emulate the ways that Jesus lived his life. And Paul continues addressing this oneness theme all the way through chapter 4. Here's what he says when he gets to chapter 4, verse 25 and 27. In response to maintaining the integrity of oneness in Jesus. Okay, He says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, 
do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. And breaking this down, Paul is saying here, I believe, conflict's normal. Anger's even normal, right? There's a way to be angry and not sin. But it's important to do our best to resolve the conflict quickly. That's why he says, deal with it even before the sun goes down. That's not always possible. He's just underscoring. It's a Jewish teaching. It's a way of underscoring how important something is. It's like when Jesus said, if, you're, if your right hand, left hand sins, cut it off. He doesn't mean that, right? It's a Jewish teaching that how important uh, sin is in our lives or the lack of sin should be in our lives. And so he says it's important for us to resolve it quickly so that Satan can't, like, get his foot in the door, get, a, get, a, get the crack open in the door, right, to give the devil a foothold in that relationship. In other words, Paul is saying uh, don't minimize your conflicts with a Band-Aid. Don't cover them up with a white coat of paint. Shine a bright light on your conflicts by speaking the truth to each other about what's happening in the relationship. Tell your narrative and listen to what you both have to say without trying to convince the other person that their narrative is wrong. For we are all members of one body. And our oneness is to come from following Jesus and Jesus alone, not from following anyone else. If our narrative is not from following Jesus, we have the wrong person that we're following. And then Paul goes on to say a few verses later, this is verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, and I think he means the inappropriate anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. So these things, bitterness, rage, inappropriate anger, brawling, slander, and malice, they're all behaviors that build up over a period of time when we minimize or cover up our conflicts. And when this happens, it means that Satan has secured a foothold in that relationship all because we haven't done the important and the hard work of peacemaking and reconciliation along the way. And that's when a relationship begins to feel hopeless and not able to be reconcilable. But then Paul wraps us all up. I mean, I'm sorry. When we try to put a band-aid on a deep wound or whitewash it like it's not really a problem, a big problem. That's how Satan weasels his way into our conflicts. And that's when it becomes hopeless and this is the hard work that you and I have to do with each other and as we engage in the world. So let me tell you these two stories. The first one I'll tell you happened in 2006. So this, this transformation, conflict transformation wasn't on my radar screen back then. But in looking back, that's exactly what it was. Um, in 2006, the movie The Passion of the Christ was released. 
And there was a divide between Christians and Jews. The Christians were saying, oh, this is going to be a beautiful two-hour movie of how the Messiah shows his love for us by suffering and dying on a cross. And the Jews are saying, no, this is going to be two hours of promoting anti-Semitism in the world. And I began to hear those rumblings here in Boulder County, but I was reading about it on, on um, national and international news networks. There was a divide taking place. And so I had this idea, how about I'll invite the Jewish, leader, the Jewish leadership community from Boulder and the Jewish leadership community, or the Christian leadership community from Boulder to get together. And we had a donor that was going to sponsor a meal at the Broker Inn. And, um, and I went out and invited these two groups. Um, and about 70 Christians responded and about 35 Jewish leaders responded. And it's the night before. And I'm a little nervous about it. The whole goal was to talk about this so that we didn't go back to our pulpits, whether we're Jews or Christians, and do anything that would promote anti-Semitism. But it was also to gain some understanding about why the Jewish world would feel this way. So I get a call about 8 o'clock at night. And this woman says, hi, my name, and I won't, tell, I won't say her name, Jewish woman who worked for a Jewish agency in Denver. She goes, you don't know me, but I just was at a meeting where the... Um, Several rabbis were there, and the Denver area leader of the Anti-Defamation League was there. They previewed this film. It's anti-Semitic. And in the words of the ADL leader, he said, tomorrow I am going to chew up and spit out Gene Binder. And I just thought you should know that. <laughs> so I said, well, thanks. I go, she says, look, you know, you seem like a nice guy and you're well-intended. And so... You know, I hope you're able to, to handle this. And we hung up. And then I'm just like stressing out. And I prayed. And I felt like God gave me an answer of what to do. And so the next day, what was planned was to have lunch. I had asked a, a female cantor in one of the local Jewish synagogues to lead us in some a cappella uh, chanting from the psalms she does a great job and that was that was beautiful and then the plan initially was to just open it up for discussion well but here's what god gave me so after the music i stood up just like i am now it was so tense in that room i mean even when people arrived you could just feel the tension just think of that it's it's it, it was a room about this size of 70 christian leaders 35 jewish leaders most of the Jewish leaders are sitting like this. And I said, well, I'm in a word position because all my Jewish brothers and sisters here, they don't even think I'm Jewish anymore because I follow Rabbi Yeshua. Turns out a week before, the Daily Camera, the local newspaper here, came and did an article on me. Somebody said, hey, do you know there's this Jewish pastor um, in, in Boulder. So they came and did an article on me. They asked me a bunch of questions. And in, um, in preparation for writing the article, they went and interviewed a local rabbi from the Reform Synagogue here. Her name is Rabbi Deborah Bronstein. 
And she said, which is just classic for what, how a Jew would really respond, oh, he's not Jewish. You can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And that was about it. She didn't really say much more about that. So I said, you, this, this group here doesn't even think I'm Jewish. You guys don't even know what to do with me. You know, what is he? Is he Messianic? I mean, what, how do we relate to him? But I said, all I want to do this morning is I want to tell you a, a quick story. And the story I'm going to tell you, every Jew in this room knows. Every Jew sitting here knows what I'm about to tell you. And I'm going to guess that almost all of you, if not all of you, do not know this story. The story I'm going to tell you is Christianity's history towards the Jewish people over the centuries. And so it was only about 10 minutes. It was a short presentation. And I read all the way from the first century the anti-Semitic writings of early church fathers, people that everybody knows if you're a Christian. Um, I went all the way to Martin Luther, who was extremely anti-Semitic, not at first, but he ended up writing a book called The Jews and Their Lies. You can still buy it on Amazon today. It's just just filthy, as, it, as, as were most of these church fathers who who called Jews pigs and not worthy of redemption. Not, it can't even get redemption. It was just horrible stuff. And how over the course of centuries, millions of Jews were killed by Christians because of this kind of seething rage in the name of Jesus, as if somehow Jesus would be happy about this. And I ended with Hitler, who said there were two things that formed his opinion about the Jewish people. One was the writings of Martin Luther. The second was his mother took him to the Passion Play every year. The Passion Play originated in the Middle Ages. And it's what you think it is. It's a story of the last week of Jesus' life on earth called the Passion, Passion Week. And whenever they went out to, to, to look for characters to play the role of the Jews, particularly the ones who would go, kill the Christ, kill the Christ, they would make sure they had distorted facial figures. In Europe, mostly in Europe, European Jews would be, become so inflamed that after these passion plays, they would go out and burn down and kill Jews or hang them. And this was a reality of the history of that play. So when we talk about the passion of the Christ, it stirs up that fear. Are they going to do this again? Well, while I'm talking, the rabbis are like, they're going like this. Their arms relax. And I could tell that I'm, like I'm, I'm saying something that is resonating. They feel, they feel validated about something. And I finish by saying, you know, in the same way, we're not personally responsible for slavery. It's interesting how, you know, 2006, 14 years ago, I'm saying this, that we're not personally responsible for slavery, but we would do anything in our power to reconcile that problem that exists today. Maybe what we should do is just say we're sorry to our Jewish brothers and sisters for anything that our history has done to cause them grief. And I just left it at that. And I'll never forget the first guy that went to apologize fell to his knees sobbing uncontrollably like a baby. And he said, I am so sorry. 
I've been to seminary. I've never heard any of this story before, which is true. They don't teach this at seminary. At least they're starting to teach it now. And he just begged for forgiveness. Well, one by one, people began to apologize. It went on for about an hour. To this day, it's the most amazing experience I've ever had as a believer, short of trusting in Jesus. Okay, and marrying my wife. I better get that in there. So we had, right afterwards, we had um, a rabbi stand up and he said some words. And then the guy from the ADL stood up. And I'm thinking, oh, here it goes. And he stands up. And he just stands there like this. And he says, well, I think this is going really well. And he sat down. And that was it. But here's the part that really got to me. After the meeting, Rabbi Deborah Bronstein came up to me and she's crying. And she looks at me and she says, I'm so stupid. And I said, you're not stupid, you're, you're brilliant. What do you mean you're stupid? She goes, no, 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 I'm, I'm stupid. I go, why do you think you're stupid? She says, because I can see that you're Jewish. And that day was a game-changing day for me to be able to intersect with credibility into the Jewish community. It was only a few weeks later that the movie came out and some pastor in Denver who had a marquee on a busy street thought it was a good idea to write the Jews killed Jesus on his marquee. Guess who the Jewish community called to ask if, to be their spokesperson? Me. Sadly, I was out of the country, so Coach Bill McCartney went and did it for them. But you see what could happen when you listen to each other's narratives, you can gain empathy. That's the main thing we've been trying to do with these videos, is just to, is just to gain some empathy. The second story, it won't be as long, is that I've been, taking, I've been going to Israel almost once or twice a year uh, since 2008. And when I started going, I had a narrative that said, God exiled the Jews from Israel a second time. And he, promised, and he scattered them to the four corners of the world. And he promised to bring them back to Israel. Which, by the way, I still believe today. So if I say something that makes it sound like I don't believe that today, just, just know that I still firmly believe that God did that. And yes, they made it back. And that if there are people in Israel, like the Palestinians, who don't like it, they could just leave. That was my narrative. And that's a lot of people's narrative, particularly if you, if you identify as what's called a Christian Zionist. And of course, there's lots of um, right-wing Jews who, in Israel, Orthodox Jews, who believe the same thing. But you know, over the years, I began to be uncomfortable seeing the partition walls that were built in the second intifada to keep the Palestinian terrorists from sneaking in and blowing themselves up. And it worked, by the way. So I'm thankful for that. But I began to ask the question, who are those people on the other side of this thing? I mean, I've got my narrative, but I don't really know these people. And one year I decided to change that. 
I actually went through the wall and met a few Palestinians. But I met this one guy that we have mentioned before that we partner with. His name is Salim Munayer. He's a Palestinian Christian. A lot of people are surprised to hear that there's a very large Arab Christian population in Israel. And I discovered that Salim started this organization called Musalaha, which is Arabic for reconciliation. And since 2001, he started initially bringing uh, Israeli Jewish believers, so Messianic Jews in Israel, and Palestinian Christians together for a week retreat in the desert to bring reconciliation between those two groups because there's just as much bad blood between them as there are from Israelis and just Muslims, uh, Palestinian Muslims. And he would bring them into the desert and he had developed a curriculum and about a day or two into this, the rage begins to come out. Each group angry because because most of them had lost family or friends in the conflict. Each one of them has this narrative that doesn't lead to peace. It just demonizes the other side. And he said, invariably, there's two or three from each side who leave. They can't handle it. But those who stay learn how to respect each other's narrative and they build lifelong relationships because of it. And the narratives are no longer opposing, but they're working together to find solutions. It's an incredible ministry. We're bringing Salim out next spring, and the plan is for us to um, have a retreat with Boulder area clergy, and we're going to make that as diverse as we can to go through one of his retreats, but we're also going to have him come here at Cornerstone to, uh, to lead us in the reconciliation process um, the week after Easter. So just keep listening for that. Keep praying that COVID will not continue to a degree that Salim can't leave or, um, or we can't get together. It's not unusual for two groups to have opposing narratives that create huge wounds. In politics... The, the, the narrative for liberals is they keep people down and out with never-ending entitlement programs that give those people no incentive to improve their lives. The narrative for conservatives, they don't care about those who are down and out. They only care about making the rich richer. In race, it's because racism in America, because of racism in America, black people have a disadvantage to succeed and prosper The other side says, well, there's no racism in America, and everyone has an equal opportunity. They just have to work hard. And the truth is that both narratives are really looking for the same results, but they have very different narrative about how to get there. Conflict transformation is a peaceable pathway that first reconciles the deep wounds caused by those opposing divisive narratives and then creates an opportunity to work together to reach a mutually, those mutually desired results. 
We used to do that somewhat in our political system, but it's not working. It's broken right now. So let me finish by just reading those, those passages again in Ephesians. And I'd just like you to listen. I mean, are you, you know, maybe, I mean, this works at, at a marriage level, at a friendship level, but it also works at a national and a global level. That's the beauty of conflict transformation. So just think about the relationships in your own life. Do you have some divided relationships? At home, at work? Politics, race? Do you feel like your narrative is really the only narrative that is the moral and better narrative? Listen to Paul's words before I close here. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in the Messiah, God forgave you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you lived your life when you walked on earth. We thank you that you were a bridge builder, not a divider. We thank you that you listened to other narratives. You didn't just buy the the prevailing narrative of the Jewish culture, the Jewish leadership at that time. You supported people who had different narratives, different lives, different outcomes. You invited them into your community, Lord, to follow you. And that's really what we need to do is just emulate you, Lord, Again, that's what it comes down to. And so help us, Lord, those of us that have bitterness or rage or anger. We're brawling, we're slandering, using forms of malice to demonize people. Teach us to be kind and compassionate to one another. And forgiving each other, just as in faith in you. God forgave us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.